So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Emmanuel. Emmanuel, I know that you are among us now, Lord Jesus. And yet, Lord Jesus, uh, the subtle tragedy hidden in the glory of this night is that most of those who might have been witnesses did not notice your coming in their midst. And so I pray right now, Lord, that you would make us those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that we would behold you and therefore be filled with the joy that you bring. I pray, Lord Jesus, that all that might distract us and all that might withhold us and all that we carry from the years that we have lived up to this point that might stall us or keep us stuck or get in the way, um, that you would come and appear in my story and the story of my brother and the story of my sister tonight in a way that we would fall to our knees and say, Emmanuel, for the first time we're all over again. In Jesus' name. Amen. So as a kid, uh, every year on Christmas night, my family would always go to the movies. That was like our family tradition. And so I always knew that on Christmas Day... Yeah? Okay. So I always knew that on Christmas Day, there'd be a whole lot of discussion about what we were all going to go see that night. And every member of the family was coming in with a different set of criteria, right? Some trust a good director, like... Scorsese's new film, Killers of the Flower Moon, is still currently showing, and he's arguably the greatest living film director, proven track record, and so some would say, well, anything Scorsese makes is probably worth seeing. But others are pulled in by the cast. Like a couple weeks ago, I went and saw the film Dream Sequence, because controversial opinion coming here, but I think that Nick Cage is an incredible actor. <laughs> I, I think... He's an extraordinary actor who just doesn't take himself that seriously. So, you know, like if you listen to some of the Oscars acceptance speeches, some people think that by pretending to be someone else, they're like saving the whole world, it seems like, with the way the actors talk about themselves while getting the golden trophy. But not Nick Cage. Nick Cage will do like a really unique indie film where he puts on an incredible performance, but he's also not above National Treasure 7 because he just doesn't take himself that seriously. This is my theory, at least. And then there's plenty of people that are drawn into a plot. Tomorrow on Christmas Day, Boys in the Boat premieres, which is based on Dan James Brown's nonfiction book that won the Pulitzer. And while I have not read that book, I did read his follow-up, which was titled Facing the Mountain, and I loved it, which officially has me interested because I am a sucker for a true story. Director, cast, and plot. Who is the storyteller? Who are the major characters? 
and what is the driving through line of the story. Those are the factors that most often determine if a story moves us, challenges us, and maybe even in the rarest of instances, changes us. Director, cast, and plot. So that seems like as good a grid as any to take a look at the story of creator becoming creation, most commonly known as Christmas. So why don't we start with the director? The Bible contains not just one biography of Jesus' life, but four. It's the same story, just told from different angles and different perspectives. And so what we read a moment ago in story form from Luke, we can also read in the form of poetry from the gospel author John, who explained the whole thing this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that's a loaded statement if there ever was one. In the beginning, those are the very first words of the entire Bible, the opening line of the story that the Jews have grounded themselves in for thousands of years. It's the opening line of the story that has carried them through slavery, deliverance, prosperity, and exile, the words that every Jewish child would have recited in the temple growing up. This might be the most distinct phrase in the whole of the Hebrew language, in the beginning, when John chose that phrase, as the opening words of his gospel, he was claiming in terms that every ancient Israelite would understand that Jesus is the culmination to which the whole of human history has been pointing. In the beginning was the word, or the logos in ancient Greek, which is the language that John was writing in. That's just as loaded, because logos is the definitive term of Stoic Greek philosophy. Logos means the rational principle by which everything exists. It is the common foundation that makes sense of the world. Philosophy is all about deconstructing everything that we assume to be true and getting life down to its very essence so we can rebuild from there. Logos is the floor of that philosophical deconstruction. It is a term that the Greeks used to say, if we strip life down to its very essence, there's something at the core that's holding the whole thing together, something that makes existence possible. Whatever that thing is, let's call it logos. And they did. So with that word, John was claiming in language that every Greco-Roman would understand that the life of Jesus is the culmination to which uh, all of philosophical thought has pointed. He gathers up the whole of the human race in six words to deliver this punchline. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The one from the very beginning, the grounding story of the Hebrew Torah, uh, the, the logos, the grounding floor of philosophical thought became flesh. In Latin, it's caro, from which we get the English carnivore, meaning one who eats meat, or the Spanish carne, as in chili con carne. John the poet is very bluntly claiming the God who is big enough to create a cosmic expanse so wide and deep that scientific research indicates that all we've ever discovered is just in a tiny little corner of it. That God became a lump of meat. The word became flesh means the director is making a cameo appearance in his own film. The director, Quentin Tarantino, is sort of a love him or hate him film director. A number of his movies have been critically acclaimed and award nominated. A bunch of big name actors line up to, to get a starring role on the cast of his next film. He's admired and adored, but he's also polarizing because of some of his quirks, like the gratuitous violence that he displays in his films. And then, of course, there's his insistent habit of making a cameo appearance in every one of his movies. And of course, that's easy to pull off because if you're the director, you can jump in front of camera anytime you want as anyone you want. 
If you're God, the director of the grand drama of human history, you can pop into the story anytime you want as anyone you want, which should make us wonder, why did Jesus come when he did, as who he did, and through whom he did? And that takes us from the director to the cast. The night of Jesus' birth included a motley crew of witnesses. There were shepherds, magi, Simeon, and Anna. But of course, among the cast members, it's got to be Mary who steals the show. And if we're going to understand the role of Mary, we've got to view her character within the broader story that the birth of Jesus fits within, the the in-the-beginning story that John so poetically tied us back to. The climactic story of Hebrew history prior to the birth of Jesus was known as the Exodus. When God, through Moses, miraculously delivered Israel from Egyptian slavery. Pay very close attention to how that story gets going, though. The Bible opens as a story of a loving God in harmonious union with people who are living in loving community. That promise, or the promise of that potential, just begins to come apart at the seams with the introduction of a deceiver. The union on the Bible's first page is quickly replaced by division, division between God and people and division between people and people, an issue that balloons from this one forbidden fruit fiasco until it's infected the whole of societies and cultures to the tune that one nation has enslaved and oppressed another nation, in this case, Egypt enslaving Israel. An era of slavery that went on to last so many generations that Pharaoh, the Egyptian king, begins to worry that the slaves are going to outnumber the slave drivers. And so he institutes population control, or really power control, in the most brutal way possible by ordering an empire-wide genocide of all newborn baby boys. So, How does a loving God deal with some of his people becoming oppressed and others becoming oppressor, dehumanizing both sides? That is the question that opens the Exodus story. An enslaved Israelite woman gives birth to a son, hides him away in a papyrus basket so he can grow up right under the king's nose. He's found by Pharaoh's daughter of all people and is raised in Pharaoh's palace of all places. But interesting detail here, Moses' older sister makes a really sneaky suggestion to Moses' adoptive mother. Exodus chapter 2. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother, meaning Moses' actual mom, the one who hid him in the papyrus basket in the first place. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and and he became her son. She named him Moses. So, how does a loving God deal with some of his people becoming oppressed and others becoming oppressed or dehumanizing both sides? Well, he, defi- he finds a devout woman among the oppressed, raises up a deliverer under her care, a deliverer who she will sacrificially and willingly give away for Israel and the nations. That's the answer. You know, it's Moses that gets all the attention from the Exodus story, right? And that's the name that everybody knows, but this story does not work without the quiet, humble, profound sacrifice of Moses' mother. Think about the daily quiet grief of being paid to nurse a baby, your own child, and then hand him back to the woman who's oppressing you. 
of giving your son several times a day, every day, back into the arms of your slave driver. I mean, for Moses, there were moments of loud, public, spectacular sacrifice. For Moses' mother, there is much quieter, but no less heroic sacrifice. In Sarah Sintil's memoir, Stranger Care, she talks about her experience as a foster mother. And she explains in very brutally honest detail about the painful experience of caring for a child for months or even years at a time and then to give that child back to the birth parents, which is, uh, psychologically speaking, a good thing for the child and to be celebrated and also a very difficult thing for the foster mother. That experience, though psychologically speaking, would only be compounded if you're the actual birth mother giving the child away. You see, the hormone oxytocin, which forms a biological bond between two human beings, is released into the female body in three experiences, sex, childbirth, and breastfeeding. Moses' mother is biologically bound deeper and deeper to her son with each covert nursing exchange, a quiet, heroic act of sacrifice running beneath the whole Exodus story. But you got to know, the Bible's not just like a mishmash of mystical fairy tales. It is a masterfully woven story with a coherent plot and a director. The entire Bible is a story revealing and pointing to Jesus. And the deliverance in Act 1, backed by the quiet sacrifice of a mother, is just a brilliant bit of screenwriting foreshadowing the real deliverance, which is coming in Act 2, backed again by the quiet, humble sacrifice of a mother. The story of Jesus opens like this. A new oppressor, Rome, is uh, oppressing the same people, Israel. And Herod, who's a stand-in for Pharaoh, is instituting population control, but really power control in the most brutal means possible by ordering an empire-wide infant genocide of all newborn baby boys. This should sound familiar. So, how does a loving God deal with some of his people becoming oppressed and others becoming oppressor, dehumanizing both sides? We already know the answer. He finds a devout woman among the oppressed, raises a deliverer up under her care, a deliverer who or who she will sacrificially give away uh, for Israel and the nations. You see, the fate of Mary, entrusted with the honor of carrying the life of God in her womb, is that she cannot keep her son to herself. She is destined to give him up for all of us, for the oppressed and the oppressor, for the reunification of all that went wrong in the very beginning. In fact, in Luke's account of Jesus' birth, Mary, keeping with tradition, takes Jesus to the temple for his dedication when he's eight days old. And there's an old devout man named Simeon there, who we talked quite a lot about last Sunday. He recognizes God disguised as a baby. Simeon sees the unfolding plot and the masterful way that God is weaving it all together. And so he grabs the baby from Mary's arms and with a supernatural smile spread across his weathered face, belts out this joy-filled prayer that culminates with a really cryptic line that he says right to Mary. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. I've never seen the end of Simeon's prayer make it onto a Christmas card. You know, it just doesn't pair well with like a new turtleneck and a candy cane. 
But for much of church history, these were the very words that were chanted uh, at Christmas time by churches around the world. Because this is a prayer to remind all of us, this is joy. But it's a kind of joy that grows up amidst pain, like wheat among the weeds. And the old man was right. I mean, being the mother of Jesus meant the very best front row seat to the most significant life in human history. And being the mother of Jesus meant burying your own child. This child is hope for the world, and his life is going to pierce your own soul, Mary. That's what Simeon said. Blessed are you who are highly favored. That's what the angel told her. But of course, Mary's high favor included, you will nurse this baby, peel him off your leg at school, drop off on his first day, pack his lunches, hold his hand while he crosses the street, pin his photo up to your wall, save a locket of hair from his first trip to the barber, and stand at the foot of his cross on an eerily dark day as you helplessly watch him be falsely accused, publicly disgraced, and publicly executed to the cheers of your neighbors. Highly favored meant all of that. Being chosen as the mother of Jesus meant all of that. Highly favored meant this story of loud public sacrifice heard around the world does not work without the quiet, humble, mostly unnoticed sacrifice of a mother in the background of all the action. You see, the cast of the Christmas drama reveals that Christmas is a glorious promise grounded in reality. A story with heavenly promises that get planted like seeds in the soil of this corrupted world. Christmas is the only Christian holy day that is also a secular holiday. And for that reason, there's some biblical residue that's just sort of gotten stuck to the secular celebration. Like the holiday season, it stands for sentiments like joy, cheer, brightness, love, generosity, all of which are derived from the biblical story and all of which are printed on Starbucks cups and Amazon gift cards. Only the secular version replaces Jesus with snowflakes, mistletoe, and peppermint mochas. You see, westernized secular Christmas is a celebration of glorious promises, but those promises aren't grounded in reality. And that's why the holidays are a really happy time for a lot of people, but they're a really difficult time for just as many people. Because the holidays drag up good memories from past years and also painful memories from past years. They invite us to rest in the company of our loved ones or to be forced to pass long, slow days thinking of the loved ones that we don't have or to remember the loved ones who are not with us this year. Christmas drags up the memories that we want to relive forever and it also drags up the memories that we never want to relive but are forced to every December. The modern Americanized version of Christmas can be so painful because we are given all of the promise but none of the reality. Meaning those promises are sentimental and flimsy. They will not hold the weight of my actual life and they are not set down in the circumstances of my actual life. The birth of Jesus means this. The most glorious promise is grounded in the stark reality of this actual world. 
The promise of Christmas is one about joy that grows up amidst suffering, and I'm talking about every kind of suffering. I mean suffering as broad as enslavement and oppression, and suffering as personal as rejection, humiliation, and the grief of a mother weeping over her son's casket. I'm talking about hope for the whole world and a sword that pierces your own individual soul too. And that means the promise of Christmas is for the woman who suffered countless miscarriages and the husband who is powerless to comfort her. It is for the heartbroken divorcee and the shame-cloaked adulterer. The promise of Christmas is for the grieving parent, the forgotten grandparent, and the neglected child. The promise of Christmas is for the depressed, the anxious, the lonely, the angry, and the addicted. Because love has made a home in the midst of pain, we now know a kind of love that outlives our pain. That is the promise of Christmas. The cast of the original Christmas story keeps this glorious promise firmly fixed in the painful ground of this everyday world. And that means that this story is either hope that is alive and available in this world of suffering and pain, or it is an outright lie of the most offensive and obvious variety, but it is not a fairy tale. It is not sentiment that is floating abstractly above the actual circumstances of our everyday world and the painful reality of our lives tonight. It is grounded truth or it is grounded fallacy. Those are the only options that the Christmas story leaves us with. And that brings us to the plot. You know, the difference between Jesus and Quentin Tarantino, or maybe one of the differences (laughs) between Jesus and Quentin Tarantino... And the point at which my analogy breaks down is this, that Tarantino sneaks into a scene to, as like a s- subtle nod to his most devoted fans at best, or because he's a total narcissist who can't bear to be outshined by his cast at worst. But Jesus made a cameo of sacrifice, not of narcissism, and not to gain fans, but to remind the cast members who they really are. So let's try a second analogy. I spent 12 years of my life in New York City where there is a phenomenal amount of people trying to find their way under the cast of Saturday Night Live. And that makes for a pretty delightful local comedy scene. And every once in a while, I would go to an amateur improv comedy show. More often than not, this story would go off the rails, and at some point, the director would have to insert himself into the story to get the whole plot back on track. Now, if you're totally unfamiliar with improv comedy, here's the basics. A scenario is given to a group of people who then begin to act it out at random, entirely off the cuff. That usually leads to a hilarious experience for everyone, but occasionally, every one of the actors thinks the story's going in a different direction, and they're not reading each other's cues, and the whole thing just gets really weird and entirely off plot. It's at that point that in an amateur show, the director will step onto the stage and act as one of the characters for a period of time, but as soon as the cast has, has got it again and is moving in the same direction, they exit stage right unnoticed, and, and the cast continues on. That technique is called recovering the plot, and that is exactly what the life of Jesus is all about. In the Bible's opening chapter, at the crowning moment of creation, God scooped together a pile of dust. Uh, He got dirt into his hands and he breathed life into it. That's how you and I were made. Scripture says that human beings are distinct from everything else that God has made and that he created us out of the dust and he filled our lungs with his very breath. In Jesus, God became dust. God scooped some dirt into his hands again and he breathed his own life into being. And of course, the way that 
Jesus was born was only indicative of the way that he would live. Jesus never stopped getting his hands dirty like God did at first. He made himself unclean in the temple's eyes again and again and again, touching the untouchables, keeping company with the outcasts, spending all of his time in the city's darkest corners among the so-called dirtiest people. The whole plot of the biblical story is about glory getting dirty so that dirt can become blessed. The curse named at the story's beginning culminated, for out of dust you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the inevitable end that we cannot escape this side of sin, that no matter who we are, what we have, or who we might become, death is our greatest enemy and our common destination. Jesus willingly chose death. He held back his infinite power and took our curse on himself. He was crucified and buried in a, in a tomb. He, he made himself out of the dust, and then he returned to the dust, wearing our curse all the way into the ground. Glory himself became dirt, lived with dirt in the creases of his hands every day, and then was laid to rest in the dirt at the end of it all. But the dirt could not hold him for long. You see, he alone lived a life of perfect love, and so death itself had no claim on him. Three days later, Jesus rose, and he pushed back not only a, a tombstone, but the curse itself. A new life of love is now freely offered to anyone who would receive it. Here is the plot. Glory became dirt so that you and I might become glory. You see, Jesus is the director humbling himself to enter the plot of his own story. He is among the cast and the ultimate example of the quiet, humble sacrifice to which these biblical mothers point. The God who undressed himself of power and was laid quietly unnoticed in a manger among us. And Jesus is the plot. He is the living word. He is the ultimate example of the loud public sacrifice to which Moses' staff pointed when it was raised to part the, the Red Sea. A cross was raised up like a staff to make a way through an uncrossable chasm from death and into life. And a year ago, we gathered in this room to remember this very story that we've been retelling tonight. And we lit candles, a lot like the ones that we've already lit tonight, and we read scripture, actually the very bits of scripture that we've read so far tonight. And on that night, we were beginning the Advent journey that we're culminating now. And Joe was one of the scripture readers that night. And he was assigned the passage about Jesus' birth, Christmas. And as Joe began to read, he got about halfway through the passage, and he choked up. He started to weep. And it took him a little while to compose himself so he could make his way through the story. And Joe is an old man, retired. He worked as a pastor for 52 years. I've heard it said that to be a pastor is to tell the same story every year and never get tired of retelling it. And that was Joe, still undone by the story that he'd not just heard and reheard, but told and retold for over five decades. And as he tried to get those words out through tears, there I sat on that front row, a young man full of plans and racing through another holiday season, doing my best to keep all the plates of my life spinning, trying my best to convince myself again this time that somehow I could piece together full life all on my own. The old man up here reading the familiar story again this year, his knees buckling in front of all of us, his voice quaking as he wept at the king who would sacrifice so quietly so that you and I might be called children of God. 
And when this old man read that story through tears, I nearly fell out of my seat and onto my knees. Tears began to well behind my eyes, and it was as if God himself was with me, Emmanuel, in the form of Jesus, right in front of me. And I prayed aloud under my breath, Jesus, when I've told 52 years worth of your story, please let me still tell it like Joe. So we'll close with this, Luke chapter 2, verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Treasure, in the original language, most literally means to savor. That was Job. He was moving slowly enough to savor the story, to chew on it, to let it move through his taste buds and his senses and his bones that it might come alive in his being. And for some, I think that's probably the invitation this Christmas Eve is not to swallow this story whole again this year, but to savor it, to chew on it, to really taste it, that it might come alive within you. And then there's ponder. Scholars tell us that the ancient Greek word appearing in the original manuscript is to put into context or to connect. That's the most literal translation, at least. So Mary, on the other side of labor and delivery, is gazing at Jesus, and as she does, she's seeing her story in the context of his. She is connecting the dots between her little plot and the grand plot that it fits within. Here he is, the most glorious promise grounded right here in the stark reality of my world. Here he is, the one who sacrifices loudly and quietly, the one whose love outlives pain. Here is Emmanuel, God with me. The story of Jesus is the only story within which the plot of my life becomes coherent. And not just coherent, but compelling worth savoring, and even worth sacrificing. For some, that's the invitation this Christmas Eve, is to see your life, the little plot of your life, within the larger story that it fits within. The in the beginning story of the life of Jesus.